So I have uh, known the Lord now for, I, I believe it's 35 years. What's that? Allegedly? <laughs> I've known the Lord for 35 years or somewhere thereabouts. And to uh, be real honest, I have met some of the most confident and joyous Christians and some of the most pessimistic and miserable. Anybody else experience that? There are those who seem to radiate joy and confidence no matter what the situation or circumstance. And then there are those who seem to ooze pessimism. I think about one individual. In fact, Dave Rancifer actually met her. Dave and I did not know each other, obviously. He, was, he grew up in Ohio. I grew up in Wisconsin. We were both involved with Campus Crusade for Christ. And uh, Campus Crusade had this big uh, Christmas convention, we'll call it, um, that they held in Chicago. They did it for a few years. And so I happened to have been there, and Dave happened to have been there. I didn't meet him at the time. But what's interesting is when I first met Dave here, he knew a girl that I went to college with, and her name was Lynn. And Lynn had one of these um, personalities where she was probably the most optimistic person you will ever meet. Always smiling, always in a good mood, almost over the top, wondering what she's on. Dave, when I first met him, brought her up. I met somebody from your school, you know, and started to talk about her. And um, we both had the same impression of her. Probably one of the most encouraging people you will ever meet in your life. Just radiates the joy of the Lord. And there's those on the opposite side of the spectrum. That it seems that every time you meet them, they are oozing pessimism or misery. As I was thinking about that, I thought about a particular character from Winnie the Pooh. Everybody know who Eeyore is? I want you to watch this briefly here. Go ahead and throw that up there. Good morning, Pooh Bear. If it is a good morning, which I doubt. However, did I get your tail back on properly, Eeyore? No matter. Most likely lives it again anyway. Poor dear. You know, I may have just the thing. Up, up, up you go. <laughs> there you are. It's an awful nice tail, Kanga. Much nicer than the rest of me. It's not much of a tail, but I'm sort of attached to it. Not much of a house. Just right for not much of a donkey. Might take a day or two. End of the road. Nothing to do. And no hope of things getting better. Sounds like Saturday night at my house. Now, I'm not going to ask if anybody relates to that because I'm hoping not. Makes me wonder, though... um, Christians, as Christians, we are supposed to be the most optimistic, the most joy-filled. People should see it when they see us. And so it's unfortunate when we meet those who don't seem to express the confidence and joy that they should in knowing Christ. So the question that I want to pose this morning is, what's the secret to being the former rather than the latter? In other words, what's the secret to confidence and joy in the Lord. Our psalm today is Psalm chapter 16. 
And it's classified as a psalm of confidence. And the theme is confidence and joy that we should have in the Lord. It's written by David. And it actually provides, I believe, some clues to how we can experience confidence and joy in the Lord as we should. Let's talk about some of the way that this is laid out and some of the poetic elements so that we can appreciate it as we do that. If you look at the psalm today, you'll notice that there's 11 verses. The way it's broken down is verse 1 serves as an introduction, and then verses 2 through 6 form a section. I'm going to refer to that as David's convictions about the Lord. And then verses 7 and 8 form a section, and that's I'm going to refer to that as David's commitment to the Lord. And then verses 9 through 11 form the last section of the psalm. I'm going to refer to that as David's confidence in the Lord. So again, an introduction and then three parts. Some of the poetic elements, obviously there's the typical parallelism, which means that sometimes the author will say something and then he'll repeat it again with the exact same language. There's also some, uh, some, uh, some parallelism in here where he does a little bit different, where he states something, but then instead of repeating it, he actually will expound upon it. He'll add more details to it. I'm going to introduce a new one to you today, something I don't believe that we've talked about yet. There's a particular figure of speech called metonymy, and that's basically where you will take and substitute one word for another word. Think about it this way. If I were to say to you, we need to do a head count this morning, what do I really mean? Am I just going to count heads? No, the head represents the person, the body, right? So I've substituted the word head for persons. I'm going to count persons this morning. No, I'm going to count heads. How about this one, too? Lend me your ears. Do I really mean that I I want your ears? No, it means lend me your attention. And so ears stands in for the word attention. And so metonymy is where we take one word and we substitute it for another. It's a different way of saying things. And there's a couple of examples to that. Look down at verse 4 with me just briefly here. Verse 4, he says... I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. That's an example of metonymy where he uses the word lips there instead of saying my speech. And so lips replaces the word speech. There's another example in this psalm as well. If you look at verse 5, he says, The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. There's something that that's supposed to represent. That's um, prosperity, if you will. But look also at the second half of verse 5. You support my lot. Anybody know what the word lot there, what the lot was that David's referring to? It's the dice, the the casting of lots. And so the question is, what does that word lot represent? Well, it literally means future in this case. And so he uses the word lot instead of the word future. So you might read that as, you support my future. But instead, he substitutes another noun for that. Again, this is just a poetic tool that's used to add some flavor to the psalm. We kind of do that in, in English as well, as I already mentioned. Things like, I'd hate to be in his shoes. What do we mean by that? Shoes represents situation, does it not? And so that's something you'll find fairly common in the psalms, too, as we go through them. Anybody know what metaphor is? It's where you basically take two things and you compare them. Um, They don't have everything in common, but they might have some things in common. So he says here in verse 5, the Lord is 
the portion of my inheritance and cup that's often a dead giveaway for metaphors is when you use the word like or as or is I'm sorry is in a case like this the Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup there's also something called personification do you know what personification is? It's where you take and give personal traits to something, whether it be inanimate objects or even the Lord. Look in verse 7. He says, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. Notice how he gives his mind a personal trait, the ability to instruct him. When we know that the mind doesn't instruct, right? So he personifies the mind, gives it his own will of sorts. He also says in verse 9, My heart is glad and my glory rejoices. You can see the personification there. He gives personal traits to his heart and to his glory. And he allows them to do what humans do. They're glad or they rejoice. And so he personifies his heart and his glory. The last thing I'll just touch on here, and I want you to look for this as we go through it, is he uses a ton of amazing word pictures. Verse 4, he says he pours out drink offerings. That's a representation, a word picture to describe what um, idolatry is. In verse 6, he says, boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places. Well, that represents abundance. It's a word picture. You see somebody's property with their boundary lines being drawn out wide, which means he's got a large um, plantation, if you will, a large piece of property. It's an abundance. Verse 80 says, The Lord being at his right hand, that represents guidance. It's an amazing word picture of the Lord walking hand in hand with you. Lastly, verse 10, he talks about shale and undergoing decay, instead of just simply saying death, he describes it with this amazing word picture. All of these things add life to this psalm and help us to, I think, appreciate the poetry. Let's go ahead and look at the teaching today. I mentioned that it breaks down into four parts with this introduction and three additional pieces. You're going to notice I'm going to use some um, alliteration today with something I don't often do, but it might might help us to remember. We're going to talk about David's convictions about the Lord. In other words, what he knows about the Lord. We're going to talk about David's commitment to the Lord, which is what he did. We're going to also talk about his confidence and his countenance in the Lord, which is the result of what he knows and what he does. And so what this psalm ultimately will help us to understand is, where did David get his confidence and his joy from? Where did he get his confidence and his joy from? Let's start with verse 1. David begins with a plea. He says, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. The word that David uses there for preserve is used in at least seven different ways in the Old Testament. It can refer to guarding, protecting, preserving, being careful. So the question is, exactly what does David mean when he says, Preserve me, O Lord? At its root, it means to exercise great care over somebody. And so, there's got to be some nuance of that to this. Now, different commentators take this verse different ways. Some of them believe that David is asking for protection or preservation from his enemies. But the one thing we notice about this psalm is the enemies are never mentioned. They're not talked about. So it's not likely that... However, David writes throughout this psalm about his relationship with the Lord. So the preservation that he's referring to here must have something to do with his relationship with the Lord. I believe that what David is doing here 
is he's doing exactly what we find in Psalm chapter 51. He says, Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain within me a willing spirit. What David is doing, when he says, Preserve me, O Lord, because I take refuge in you, he is crying out to the Lord to preserve, to protect his relationship with the Lord. It's not about protection from his enemies. It's, Lord, preserve my relationship with you. His plea is actually predicated on the fact that he's placed his trust in the Lord. Notice he says, because I take refuge in you. Another, a better way to render that is, I have taken refuge in you, which is this idea of kind of permanence. I placed my trust in you and I continue to trust you even today. That's a declaration of his trust in the Lord. So he knows that the Lord is going to preserve him because of that trust that he's committed to the Lord. Now the rest of this psalm actually is an expression of that. It's a reflection of David's confidence. Why is he so confident that the Lord will preserve his relationship with him? I believe it's because primarily two things. His conviction, what he believed about the Lord, and then his commitment to the Lord, what he did with those convictions. And that ultimately will lead to the confidence and the joy that he has in the Lord. So let's go ahead and break that down. David's convictions about the Lord. We find that in verses 2 through 6. And there's primarily three convictions that we see from David here. The first conviction was that his well-being was completely dependent on serving the Lord. Look at verse 2. He says, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. Now to call somebody your Lord implies that you're his servant. And that's exactly what David has done here. There's some difficulty in the in the Hebrew here, which is why some of your numer- or some of your translations render this different ways. But my New American Standard says, "I have no good besides you." I like the way the NET actually translates it because I think it captures the nuance of this best. You are my Lord, my only source of well-being. So David's first conviction was that. His well-being was completely, totally dependent upon the Lord. He had no good, no good thing outside of that in comparison. We also see in verse 2 that he was delighted with that thought. Look at what he says in verse 2. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. What I find interesting about this is oftentimes in the Psalms, we find David reflecting on the fact that he loved to be in the presence of God's people. He loved being around God's people. In fact, in the psalm I was working on last night, it's interesting because the way that he ends the psalm is the direct opposite, where he says, I absolutely hate your enemies, those who don't love you. In fact, he repeats the word hate four times in that psalm. And we'll get to that in a few weeks. And what he's doing there is he's saying, Lord, in fact, that's a psalm about crying out for vindication from the Lord. It's Psalm 139. And he's crying out for vindication. And one of the things that he expects the Lord to appreciate about him and in vindicating him from false accusations is the fact that he loves God's people, but he is... um, There's no way to soften it. He, He hates those who hate 
the Lord. Now he doesn't, we'll get into the whole details of it at another time, but we're told to love our enemies, obviously. But that, that's in the context of personal vengeance. But David's point when he says, I, I hate those who hate you, Lord, is he's basically saying, I hate wickedness. I hate those who do, do wickedness. I don't want to be in their presence. And so part of that, as we sort of look at this here, what David is basically saying is, my well-being is completely wrapped up in my relationship with the Lord. I love being in the presence of the Lord's people. It's in them that I delight. Do you think we can relate to that ever? I was thinking about this. Just the last couple of days, we had the our cross-country banquet. And um, we've mentioned this numerous times that the, both of the girls compete with Fellowship of Christian Athletes um, under the coaching of um, Daryl Bell. And man, what a, what a joy that is. And I grew up swimming, and we'd have the banquet at the end of every year, and I always enjoyed those. But man, there is, there is something that is so unique about getting in a room with a bunch of believers and a coach who stands up there and gives his testimony of how he came to know Christ, and you sing some praise and worship songs, and when the coaches talk about each one of the kids, they talk about it in the, in the context of the relationship with Christ and their character. It is a, it is a worship night. And I even sent my parents an email, my parents and my siblings, about how encouraging that is. We know what that's like to be in the presence of the Lord's people, don't we? And it encourages us in our relationship. But one of the things that that does is is it reminds us of where our delight should be. And it's something that we need. And so David, as he talks about this first conviction, what he believed about the Lord, he said, my, my well-being is wrapped up in the Lord and in His people. That's his first conviction. And you'll notice that because we're talking about confidence and joy here, David uses this word, delight. So we already begin to see some of that joy at the very beginning of the psalm. He delights in God's people, and he delights in being a servant. And so the first conviction there is that his well-being is completely wrapped up in being a servant to the Lord. His second conviction, we find in verse 4, he says, the sorrows of those who have bartered for, another way to say that is purchased, another God will be multiplied. In other words, there's misery in worshiping other things. There's misery in, in trying to find satisfaction in other things. Other translations use language like hurrying or running after other gods. David's saying that serving anything other than God, whether it be idols in David's day, or possessions, or wealth, or other things, always leads to trouble. The opposite of joy and confidence. I'm convinced that oftentimes when I come across those who seem to ooze pessimism, it's because they're worshipping other things. Their focus is on the wrong thing. For this reason, David says he refused to serve anything other than God. Look at the second half of verse 4. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood. means I won't involve myself with idolatry, worshiping other things, other gods. He says, nor will I take their names upon my lips. That's the first metonym that I kind of mentioned. I won't take their names upon my lips. I won't speak of them. I won't praise them. So his second conviction here is 
in some respects, the opposite of the first. He says that worshiping other things or pursuing other things will always lead to sorrow. Always lead to trouble. His third and final conviction is that the Lord is his greatest possession. Look at verse 5. Actually, 5 and 6. He says, The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. Look at all the word pictures there. The word translated inheritance is literally a tract of land. Cup represents provision, abundance. You get this picture of this cup overflowing. There's too much there. The cup cannot hold it. The inheritance we have in Christ is often defined or described like that. The lot here, again, I mentioned, is um, kind of that casting of lots. And it's interesting he would use that one because using lots is always chance, right? You know, throw the die. Whatever you get is what you get, but he uses it very differently here because he's using it in reference to the Lord and the inheritance that he has from the Lord. The picture of lines falling in pleasant places and a beautiful heritage almost describes this large plot of land. Let's say it this way. A lot of farmland, a lot of buildings, a big staff. All these things describe David's inheritance. Now he's using them obviously in a metaphorical sense here. Um, the Lord is not, or David here is not getting himself involved with what we would today refer to as word, faith, theology, or prosperity preaching in the gospel. You know, the God, God wants you rich, he wants you wealthy. David is using this stuff in a metaphorical sense. Because he's told us outright, God is my inheritance. Not these things. So our first clue to experiencing joy and confidence when we know the Lord starts with what we believe about the Lord. Our convictions. Do we believe that our well-being is totally and completely dependent on serving the Lord? Do we honestly believe that I am happiest or I am the most joy-filled when I'm serving the Lord or when I'm serving other things? When I'm focusing on the Lord or when I'm focusing on other things. Again, I think that's probably one of the biggest factors to discontentment, to difficulties, to frustrations. It's often in one's perspective. What they focus on, what they value. So do we believe that our well-being is totally and completely dependent on serving the Lord or do we believe that pursuing other things will lead to confidence and joy, will make us happy? Do we believe that what we have in the Lord is our greatest possession? Are we willing to wait? Think about that. You know, we've talked about this in one of the previous psalms on how the psalmist pushes us past our circumstances today toward what we have in Christ. I've been going through First um, Peter with some of the men on Tuesday mornings in our men's Bible study. And it's amazing because Peter was writing to a group of Christians that were being persecuted severely. They had been run out of Jerusalem. Um, they had lost their homes and their land and were being severely persecuted, some put to death. And Peter's encouragement to them is to look past that and instead look to what Christ has done for them and the inheritance they have in Christ. 
And in doing that, ultimately, will produce joy. Even James, when he says when we're going through trials, that we can have joy, in fact, he commands us to have joy, by telling us to recognize, to understand that what God has done with trials in the past, he will continue to do, which is to build our faith, to build endurance, that we might be complete and perfect, lacking nothing. And so the first clue to experiencing joy and confidence in the Lord starts with what we know and believe about the Lord, the convictions that we have. There's something else too, because we have to do something with that. David, in verses 7 and 8, was going to tell us about two of his commitments that he had. So let's look at David's commitment to the Lord. Because what we believe about him will ultimately lead to what we do. Our commitments. And so, the first one is verse 7. He says, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. So his first commitment was that he was committed to thanking and praising the Lord for his counsel. We are told to continually give thanks, are we not? In the scriptures. It's a part of Christian life. We are supposed to continually be giving thanks in all things, in all circumstances. We oftentimes only give thanks when we get what we like. Is that not true? It's hard for us to thank the Lord at other times. But yet we are told to. And so David was committed to thanking and praising the Lord. He says, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. He specifically had in mind what the Lord was teaching him. Boy, that brings to mind James chapter 1 again. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And if you let endurance have its perfect or have its end result, you will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, what we learn... In fact, later on, James says, if you don't know what to do at that time, ask the Lord for wisdom. Let Him teach you. And so David was committed to doing that. To bless the Lord means to recognize who He, who he is and what He's done, and then to praise and thank Him for it. I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Because this is kind of an interesting phrase. What, what does it mean to bless the Lord? We don't often use that here. We say the Lord bless you, and we think of the Lord blessing us. But what does it mean to bless the Lord? Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 10. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which He has given you. To bless the Lord is ultimately a means of thanksgiving. But it's based on what He's done, what He's provided, who He is. I want you to turn to Psalm chapter 96. Psalm chapter 96. We're looking at um, verses 2 and 3. Sing the Lord. Bless His name. Proclaim good tidings of His salvation from day to day. So there we see blessing or thanking Him as a result of the salvation that He's provided to us. Again, thanking and praising Him for what He's done for us. Look at verse or chapter 103 of Psalms. Verse 2 says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. And then he goes on and lists some of them. And so he ties blessing the Lord there to the benefits that we've received in the Lord. One last one. One more chapter. 104. 
verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. In this particular instance, we see blessing the Lord as a result of simply who He is. David actually uses some personification here when he refers to his commitment to blessing the Lord. Look at um, look at the way that he. Got to flip back to it. Look at the way that he says that. I got to find the verse here. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. So we find the specific reason that David blesses the Lord here is because the Lord instructs him. And he uses some personification there. My, my, my mind instructs me at night. I'm going to read two other psalms to you here that kind of reflect this, and I believe what David is referring to. Psalm chapter 63, verse 6, he writes, When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. He goes on in Psalm chapter 1. He says, His delight, the righteous man, is the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. What I believe David has in mind here when he says that his mind instructs him in the night, he means that he's reflecting upon God's word and allowing the Lord to instruct him. My, uh, obviously I have to study quite a bit because to be able to prepare to teach, so I do a lot of that sometimes in the day, sometimes in the evening hours. My time of reflection is usually when I first get up in the morning and I roll over and leave my alarm on to kind of let the snooze go off every five minutes because my mind will wander. But I love to use that time to reflect on what the Lord has been teaching me. Same thing when I go to bed every evening, the way that I end my day is I'll usually kind of roll over onto my stomach and I begin to pray. But that time is a reflection of what the Lord has been teaching me and what the Lord has been doing, whether it be with my family. Um, Oftentimes it's what I've been studying through the week. It's a time when the Lord kind of gets a hold of me, I think. And so David was committed to praising and thanking the Lord for all the things that the Lord was teaching him. You can begin to see now why David was able to have the confidence and the joy that he was, because he was able to rejoice in the fact that look as what look at what the Lord has been doing. Look at what the Lord has been teaching me. So he was committed to blessing the Lord for that, for the counsel he was receiving, the teaching he received. The second thing that David mentions is that he was committed to trusting the Lord. He was committed to trusting the Lord. Look at verse 8. He says, I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. So David was committed to trusting the Lord. Um, some of your other English translations, again, the, the, the Hebrew poetry sometimes is really difficult to be able to translate. Um, and so you'll find, again, some variances. But it's, it's good, I think, for that reason to sometimes, if you're reading through the Psalms, to use different translations if you have them. Because um, Hebrew is so packed sometimes that you would, you would use a, a paragraph to translate a verse sometimes to capture all the nuances. But we don't, we don't do that in English, right? We like short, concise. And so sometimes a particular translator will focus on one specific ac- aspect. 
And then another translator from another English will focus on maybe a slightly different aspect of that. But both are true about that particular verse. And again, it's because it's the language is so packed full that God was a genius when he decided to write the scriptures in Hebrew because of all the nuances to it. And so the NIV says, I will keep my eyes always on the Lord. The, the New English translation says, I constantly trust the Lord. You see the differences there? The NIV says, I will keep my eyes always on the Lord. The NET says, I will constantly trust the Lord. The Christian Holman Standard Version says, I always let the Lord guide me. All of those different ideas are wrapped up in what David is saying in this one particular verse. It reminds me, when I was... Uh, in high school and then even into college, I used to teach toddlers how to swim. And toddlers are those between two and five. And I used to love that age group because they all came in and none of them could swim. And um, the part of the pool that I was in was too deep for them to stand in. And so there was a certain fear and trepidation with many of them. But usually we had five to six toddlers in a class. And so um, they would all sit on the edge of the pool and wait for me to come over and grab them. So I would, would go over and I would maybe take one. And some of them are a little more bold and not a whole lot of fear. And so they might just, you know, get up and do their thing. In fact, there was one particular young, one girl, one, uh, I think she was probably four, if I remember right, that had no fear at all. And um, she, I would always have to like tell her, just wait, 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 because she was all, I mean, as soon as she knew it was her turn, she would stand up and get ready to go. And this one particular time, I happened to be out in the, uh, probably a good 15 feet away from the edge of the pool with one of the other little kids. And as I'm going back, she knew it was her turn, and she stood up, and I went, no! And she just leapt out into the pool, and whoosh, right down to the bottom. And we're talking probably five or six feet of water here, because even for me, I had to tread and stuff. So I'm like, fighting to get back and I got this toddler hanging on me you know and I get over there and I got to the edge and when I looked down she was literally standing on the bottom of the pool with her arms like this bubbles coming out of her nose and a huge smile on her face now that was the uh, that was the um, unusual child because there was no fear in her most of the kids though um, were afraid and so one of the ways that I would deal with them is when I would grab them and try to encourage them, you know, they would already be kind of like this, and you, know, you can barely breathe yourself, but I, would, I, I couldn't have that because I have to teach them to swim and be in the water, you know, and so I can't have them all over me, and so I'd kind of try to pry them away from me. And they would just, you could see the fear in their eye, but I would keep telling them, just look at me, look at my, look at my eyes, look at my eyes. And so as long as they would look right in my face, as long as they knew I was right there in front of them, I could get them to trust me. Couldn't turn them around. I couldn't put them on their backs and do this where they're staring. I had to have them look at my face. And as long as they could see me, you would you would see that fear that, that the fear kind of subside in the trust. And then I could gradually, as I as I would move out of the water, I could push them further away and further away and further away. But as long as I stayed right there, so that they could look at me. I would be right in front of their eyes. They would trust me. And so David says here, I've set the Lord continually before me. He's always there. I can always see him. He kind of flips that up a little bit too and he says, he's also at my right hand. Because of that, I won't be shaken. So David was committed to trusting the Lord because he knew that God would always be right there. Never leave him, never forsake him. 
I want you to turn to Psalm chapter 73 with me. There's this great word picture David uses here. And Asaph, one of his choir directors, also used a very similar word picture of the Lord being at his right hand. Psalm chapter 73, Asaph writes this, down in verse 23. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me, and afterward, receive me to glory. There's there's a great word picture. It's a bit of personification there as well. We know the Lord doesn't have a right hand doesn't have a physical body. But the way that Asaph and the way that David described the Lord here is that he's reaching out, grabbing the right hand and just walking alongside, guiding, directing. And because of that, David said, I can trust the Lord. So his second commitment was to trust the Lord. So my question to us is, what are we committed to? You can often tell what a person's committed to by their demeanor and their countenance. Pessimism and other things oftentimes mean I don't trust the Lord. Because there's worry, there's fear, there's trepidation. (laughs) Talking phone. (laughs) How often do you seek out the Lord's counsel and then thank and praise Him for it as you're going through different stages of life and circumstances and times? Are you completely committed to trusting the Lord like David was in every area of your life? I think, again, that oftentimes pessimism and doubt and other things not only color our lives because our convictions aren't always right, what we believe about the Lord and His relationship with us aren't always right, but our commitments aren't always right. We're not fully committed to trusting the Lord no matter what the circumstance, no matter what it is that's brought into our lives. Now in David's case here, we see how his convictions and his commitments actually resulted in the joy and the confidence that he experienced. Look at verses 9 through 11. Therefore, my heart is glad... And my glory rejoices. Notice he starts with that word, therefore. Therefore, because of these things, because of my convictions, because of my commitments, therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh will also dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to shale, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, There are pleasures forever. These are some pretty confident declarations, are they not? He says he would dwell in security. He says the Lord would not abandon him to shale or let his body decay in the grave. He's talking obviously about death there. Pam, I'm going to pick on you this morning. Um, Pam brought something to my attention um, over this week where our psalm last week we talked about Um, resurrection to some degree. And I've made the comment that the fools don't get raised from the dead. There's no resurrection for the fool. And Pam was kind enough to bring to my attention, the dead do get raised to life. But not eternal life. Judgment. 
condemnation. And so we have this interesting dialogue over the course of this this week, um, which means somebody's paying attention, which is cool. Um, David here, when he refers to Shale and the fact that the Lord will not leave him in Shale, the concept of the old, the concept of of, of um, David's culture and time was that when you died, you went to the underworld. Even the Hebrews understood and referred to that as shale. The worst thing that could happen is for the Lord to leave you there. To leave you in shale. Now we know that shale ultimately had two compartments by Hebrew thought. One is Abraham's bosom where you die and you go to be with Abraham and you wait for resurrection to new life. We know that that life comes in Christ. So God will take you out of shale. He'll, he'll bring you back. He'll resurrect you to new life. will not leave you in shale. The opposite of that was being left in shale, which we know ultimately means that they're in a, we call it hell, which is a temporary place that ultimately gets emptied into the lake of fire and they will spend eternity, not in shale, but eternity in the lake of fire. But that's the concept. And so David here, as he says, you won't leave my soul in shale. He's referring to that, meaning that I will be resurrected to new life. That's his confidence. He goes on here and he says, you'll make known to me the path of life. You'll instruct me in this life. You will tell me how to live this life. You'll provide those good things that I need to walk here and now. And we see in that not just his confidence, but we see another aspect to this confidence. And it's the joy that so oftentimes is missing. Notice he says, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My heart is glad, my glory rejoices. Why? Because of these things. Where does confidence and joy come from? Well, he's just described it to us. What he knows and believes about the Lord and what he's decided to do with that in trusting the Lord. He goes on and he says, In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Look at that. We've got four words there. Glad, rejoices, fullness of joy, and pleasure. He's describing what I'm going to refer to as the last C, his countenance. So what do we do when we look at this? We started off by talking about those who exude optimism, joy, confidence in the Lord versus those who express discontentment or pessimism. There's always something to whine or complain about. It's all tied to what we believe about the Lord and our relationship with Him and whether or not we're committed fully to trusting him, just as David said here. I had the privilege of, our family had the privilege of going and having dinner with the Wittens a couple of weeks ago. And at one point, Hunter and Walker and I were talking. And I'll be real frank, I am shocked sometimes at the maturity of Walker. He is mature way beyond his years. And so as we were talking about this, he was talking about some of the 
youth group activities and things that he had been involved with and how it's a challenge because many of those youth um, behave much like the rest of the world around us in terms of their language and, and other things. And he's desperate for fellowship with some godly, mature young men of his own age and, and slightly older. In fact, one of the guys that he really enjoys hanging around with um, who challenges him in his relationship with Christ is a 26-year-old. And his comment was, it's, you know, tough sometimes because of that. So it kind of started this conversation about maturity and stuff, and and Hunter, his dad, started then talking about the maturity of his son. And so we started reflecting on his year, how many, was it 18 months, Amy? 18 months of cancer treatment. And, and Walker, I asked him, I said, so what was going on inside during that time? And he looked at me, and he just, without even missing a beat, he said, you know, I was never afraid. Um, I just, I just knew the Lord would take care of me, no matter where it would go. He said, from the moment they detected the tumor, and he pointed up to his face, he's like, I just trusted the Lord. just knew. And for those of us that were, were kind of watching them as they went through this, and seeing Jennifer's emails posted on Facebook... Difficult a time as that was, and much of a struggle, and not knowing. I mean, it wasn't. This was a serious form of cancer. They never lost their joy or their confidence in the Lord, including Walker. Now there were probably some dark moments, but Walker's comment that he never feared was striking to me. Where does that come from? comes from convictions, what we know about the Lord and our relationship with Him. Something which clearly shows in Walker. And I'm sure if he were here today, he'd probably be embarrassed for talking about him. But that's the reality. The reason he faced it the way that he did was because of the things he understands, maturity in Christ and what he fully understands. But in addition to that... He was committed to trusting the Lord through that whole entire process, as were the rest of the family. They were committed to trusting the Lord through that process. And as a result, there was joy and confidence and a countenance that reflected that. So, for us personally, that becomes the challenge. I oftentimes find myself whining or complaining about a circumstance or situation and I realize that this says something about what I believe currently at that moment about my relationship with Christ and Him. And I also realize at that moment that I might not be trusting Him the way that I need to. And so we've heard the term attitude adjustment. Um, I've found that I can't just suck it up and be joyous. I can't just suck it up and be confident. I have to go back and go, what do I believe about the Lord? And what am I doing with it? Am I committed to trusting Him? And that adjusts the attitude. That makes all the difference. So we can either be like an Eeyore, (laughs) you know, or we can express the joy and confidence in the Lord that we truly have in Him. Amen?